Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello and thanks for joining us for the May episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm Ian Todd, the magazine's staff writer, and I'm joined in our studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hello. And news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. Uh, Coming up later in the episode, we'll be talking to Professor Lucy Green to find out about the science of the solar cycle and telling you our top stargazing tip for the month ahead. Uh, But now we're going to take a look at what we found out while putting together the May edition of the magazine. Uh, And it's been been a pretty hectic week, really, for astronomy and discoveries and all sorts of things, hasn't it, Is Yes, as we're recording it, um, we just heard uh, about a couple of days ago about the first ever picture of a black hole that got taken by the Event Horizon Telescope. Momentous historic occasion. Yes, yeah. um, it was It was announced on the 10th of April, but um, it was actually taken, the picture was taken back in April of 2017. It's taken them two years to process all of the data from, from eight different telescopes across the world, all working together as one to, to finally get the resolution that you need to be able to to picture a black hole, or rather the the shadow of a black hole, mm. as they call it. Mm. Yeah. That's obviously a black hole is is a point which is so dense, not even light can escape. So you can't really picture something if there's no light there. But you can see the light being bent around it because of its gravity. Mm. Um, and if you haven't seen the picture by now... Um, Where have you been? Yes. <laughs> it's been all over the internet. It was on the front page of a bunch of newspapers. Um, but it does kind of look like a fuzzy orange donut. Yeah. Um, uh. The, the dark centre, which is where the event horizon is, surrounded by this bright ring of light yeah. being bent around it. As I understand it, the the, um, the light that they're seeing is also the uh, energy being given off by the infalling matter. There is some of that. If you, you, there is also a um, zoomed out picture that you yeah. can see. So some of it is from from infalling matter. That's usually when we see pictures of black holes until now. It's actually the, the accretion disk around it, which is all the gas and dust that kind of gets trapped in orbit. Yeah. And, and it's going around so fast that it gets superheated and glows really, really brightly. Um, and if, if there is a zoomed out picture where you can see that accretion disk awesome. um, around the... this It's the supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy M87. Yeah. Because um, I think there's a kind of a... Maybe like a bit of a bit of a misconception about the, the the idea that black holes are just cosmic vacuums that hoover everything up. No, but, but they do actually give off jets of radiation and things. Yes, it's they sort of seem to throw out a lot more material than they actually gobble up. Yeah. They have these huge relativistic jets that come off, um, and in fact, you can see them in the the picture of M eighty seven. You can just about see a couple of jets. Oh, can off. you? Yeah. Ah. Um, must have missed that. Yeah. Oh. Or at least I can convince myself you can. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that looks like a jet there. <laughs> it's slightly lopsided, isn't it? It's more. It's brighter on one side than the other. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think that, that's uh, to do with the fact that uh, black holes are rotating. Mm. Um, mm. And that does something. So kind of light gets preferentially bent one way or, or yeah, something Yeah, there's light like that. that's, coming toward, that's coming towards us. It's yeah. brighter than the light that's, that's yeah. receding away from us on the other side yes. of the of the. Uh, of the um, black hole. That's yes. right. Yeah. I think it's also worth um, talking about exactly how, how it was observed, just in terms of the the array, because that's that's pretty mm. crazy. It's it's basically it's like eight different radio telescopes around the world. Eight different mm. radio telescopes um, from in Chile. Uh, I think there was a couple in Europe. There was one at the South Pole. Um, which Greenland was as well, wasn't there? Greenland. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the, the South Pole was the one that apparently caused the most problems getting the data. It took six yeah. months because they had to wait it for it to not be winter anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because um, they had to fly. <laughs> they had to actually physically deliver the hard drives because the internet is not big enough to cater for the, uh, it's, the incredible amount nothing, of data. There nothing was. beats the bandwidth of a uh, 747 filled with um, hard drives, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, apparently it was half a ton of hard drives to store all it? the data that yeah. they needed. Mm. It was five mm. petabytes, which mm. I think they, the, the analogy they said is 43. Thousand people's selfies for their entirety of their lifetime oh, yes. is the equivalent data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So quite a bit. Um, and it, yes, it's taken them two years to kind of mm. trim that down to mm. something a bit more manageable, and then make them all talk to each other and, and work together. Yeah. But yeah. The, the, the array isn't isn't just about the combined power of the telescopes, is it? It's also about the distance. I mean, I, I kind of think it, it must be. You, you could kind of make an analogy that if you're standing outside in your garden with your refractor and your friend is standing a metre away with his refractor, it would be like connecting the two to have a... A, a metre long, mm. yeah. Yeah, to have like a metre wide telescope. It's, 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 it's a similar thing to that, yes. Yeah. So it's about the distance between them um, and the angle between them as well um, that, that you're observing. Um, there's also very complicated things they have to do because obviously they're not all on the same... Um, Longitude? Is that the uppy downy one? Yes, longitude. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so they were in different time zones. So they had to wait uh, for the Earth to rotate around um, until they 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 got uh, to to where they. So they needed to wait for for basically it to be the right time of day. That's crazy. Isn't and it? they also got very lucky with the weather because they only had a week to do it, mm, and you need it mm. to be good weather not just in one location but in eight different locations. Mm, and apparently, mm. like day one, they got enough. Yeah, that's very good. But it's, yeah. it, it's pretty much we're pretty much certain now that there's a super mass, super massive black hole at the centre of most galaxies or all galaxies. Uh, most of them, yeah. Um, yeah. As far as we're aware, yeah. Um, they also tried to take a picture of the one at the centre of our own galaxy, the centre of the Milky yes. Way. Um, however, it doesn't look as big. Um, it's mm. M eighty seven is much further away. It's fifty five million light years away, um, but it's much, it's over two thousand times the size of the Milky Way black hole mm -hmm. so it was mm -hmm. much it looked bigger on the sky which is why they did that one first and okay. now yeah. they are going through the process of trying to well, well now that they've worked it out on the easy one um, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to process all the data from the difficult one um, and then they're going to start working on the data that they took on their second observing run which was in the spring of 2018 mm -hmm. um, so maybe in a couple of years time we'll, we'll get another even better picture a sharper picture yeah because I think that one had uh, another couple of telescopes added in. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, there was even yeah. more data getting put on. Cool. Mm. Uh, well, a bit a bit closer to home anyway, um, just uh, 325 million kilometres away from, mm -hmm. from our own planet. Uh, the back garden. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cosmological back garden. The uh, Japanese Hay Hayabusa 2 um, spacecraft has mm -hmm. been um, firing projectiles mm -hmm. at an asteroid. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's just kind of, this is the stuff, you know, Pictures of black holes and kind of a, 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 <laughs> autonomous yeah. rovers and, uh, you know, uh, hopping around an asteroid is kind of stuff that 20 years ago you wouldn't have believed. But in, in case anyone's kind of late to the Hayabusa 2 story, it's a, it's a, a Japanese uh, aerospace exploration agency spacecraft that launched in uh, December 2014. And the idea is to collect a sample of the asteroid Ryugu and return it back late 2020 for analysis. Um, it arrived at the asteroid in June 2018. And it has been, yeah, basically, it's the first spacecraft to put a rover on an asteroid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, but these rovers hop because the gravity of the asteroid is so weak that uh, a wheeled rover would be ineffectual. Um, and 
just as we're recording about a week ago, so it's the 4th of April, I think the date was, um, that the, the latest news is that the spacecraft fired a massive lump of copper, basically. And the idea mm. is to uh, create a massive crater because that will expose fresh material that hasn't been contaminated by the, the solar wind mm. and radiation mm. from space. Yeah. Uh, and in about two weeks' time, I think, from now, maybe by the time this podcast goes out, uh, the spacecraft is going to come back from its retreated safe point and see what the crater looks like and start start analysing it. I just love the idea that we, we've sent a spacecraft halfway across the solar system and then we're going to shoot an asteroid with it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a target practice. It's like at the fairground, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's not the only um, uh, spacecraft that's doing something similar. There's also the NASA's OSIRIS-REx, which mm. is at the asteroid mm. Bennu. Mm. Um, but I think... They've they've recently discovered that they're going to have a bit more of a hard time than they were expecting to, because Bennu is a lot more um, it's a lot rougher than they were expecting it to be. It's, it's stony, more, isn't it? It's yeah, not so dusty. Yeah, there's yeah. boulders all over the yeah. surface, and and they're trying to work out this. They've worked out that there's only actually three places on the entire asteroid that they can touch down, um, <laughs> and so they're trying to work out which one's going to be the best. Mm. But I mean, it, it it all kind of comes back to that uh, point of you know how did how did the solar system form really, isn't it? And that's mm. kind of what these missions are hopefully going to tell us because asteroids mm. are effectively yeah. time capsules. They're like the mm. primordial yes. material from which yes. planets formed. Because the, yeah. the ultimate goal yeah. of both of these missions is to, to bring those samples back rather mm. than mm. to try... Because there's only so much you can do in a oven in space. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, It's quite hard to put an oven in space. It's quite cold out there. Um, <laughs> and so you bring it back and then you've got an entire planet of the most extreme and advanced labs to, to look at this data and, and try and find out what our solar system used to look like. Yeah, I mean, because obviously pieces of asteroid fall to Earth as meteorites, but then they, they become contaminated, don't they, during they, the process? Well, they burn up, don't they? And, yeah. and they, become kind of, they become different elements afterwards with all the interaction and the incredible heat yeah. um, and you the also, atmosphere. You also have mm. the issue that the only asteroids that, that, the only asteroids that we have are meteorites are the ones that can survive the Earth's atmosphere. Mm. Um, so a lot of the most sort of common ones and, and things like um, mm. carbon carbonaceous asteroids they just burn up in the atmosphere and all we get are the big metally ones which are actually quite rare mm. Yeah. Mm. so but presumably the the japanese um space agency must they must have lots of means to not contaminate it once it actually arrives back on earth it must be like heavily like heavily sterile environment that they're going to bring it into yeah i oh, sure i bet i bet. I, I do remember because they've had a couple of other things sample return missions um in the past for various people and and there's been some pretty strict, you know, it's it's not as bad as it would be, say, if they were finally bringing back a sample from Mars because they are not expecting there to be any life on this asteroid. And the same with when they brought it back from the moon or from a comet. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, you know, like the, the outer shell has to not have been in contact with the thing that, that with the sample. And then it has to be able to make sure that even if there's a calamitous landing... A cat- catastrophic landing, I believe, is what they call it, <laughs> a.k.a. everything fails and it crashes. Um, it still has to be able to survive and not crack open. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, ho- hopefully um, maybe a few days or a week after this podcast goes out, um, people will be able to go online and find out the latest news about Hayabusa 2 and whether or not they're going to land the last rover and whether or not the crater is kind of suitable for exploration. But, uh, yeah, in, in terms of kind of understanding the solar system, um, one, of the, one of the key aspects is solar physics. And in our May issue, um, Professor Lucy Green has uh, a feature on the uh, science of the solar cycle, which is yeah. potentially coming to yeah, to, to the end of one, aren't we? It's um, well, we we if you're if you're if you've ever um, looked at the sun recently, uh, you will you will 
probably have noticed that there's um, not much going on. It's quite quiet at the moment in terms of sunspots. Um, and that is quite a lot quieter than it was, say, four or five years ago um, when there were um, there's a lot more activity on the sun. Um, and yes, uh, Lucy Green is looking at the at the kind of the physics behind that, the, the kind of dynamic um, magnetic cycle that it lies behind um, sunspots and the, the visible evidence that we can see um, and how the the kind of magnetic field becomes a lot kind of twisted over over this uh, over the solar cycle um, and then kind of unravels itself calms back down again and starts up all over again um, and so um, uh, it's very interesting um, reading the feature because it, it turns out that this, the sun and the observations of the sun it, it's been observed for the longest um, period of time of any any um, astronomical phenomenon. Mm. Um, mm. So there's this evidence going back to kind of medieval times, um, not scientifically recorded, but you know there are kind of um, monks m- monks mentioning it in manuscripts and um, Chinese astrologers mentioning it in their kind of um, records as well. As I do know there was a I think it was a, a, a Chinese uh, mm. astronomer slash astrologer because at that time they were the same thing. Um, from I think it was the 1800s mm. that I was reading about, and she had decades and decades of incredibly, um, like crafted notes. Yeah, um, and it's it's apparently astroarchaeology is like a big thing of going back through all of these notes from. Sometimes it's from yeah, yeah. from people who were supposed to be looking at the sun, and sometimes it's from other people who were just trying to work out something completely unrelated but happened mm. to record this thing. Mm. Um, mm. I always think it's fascinating that, mm. you know, you sort of uncover these things and suddenly you learn all about comets and solar cycles and yeah. ancient aurora. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. How would they have um, ob- observed it safely, though? Because obviously if you're looking at the sun, you need, like, protective well, filter, they project, filters. Well, they project or... it. Um, I think that was Galileo one of the first to um, project mm. the sun um, through his... Newfangled looking glass, aka the <laughs> telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, um, I guess you know they did the very the very unsafe thing, which you should never do, which is look at the sun without um, proper solar protect, you know, protective uh, solar glasses. But they did do that back in the day. Uh, but also, you know, if you're looking at the sun through through cloud, you can actually yeah, it is it is rel- mm. relatively safer, still unsafe, but. <laughs> You know, relatively safer. So there are a couple of ways to do it. Yeah, they. I know they used to look at uh, eclipses through smoked glass glasses, which cuts out most of the visible mm. light, but it doesn't cut out a lot of the ultraviolet and the infrared, and that's the stuff that actually does damage to your eyes, which is why you should always use proper safety gear when you're looking at the sun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Can't stress that enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, so uh, to hear more about the solar cycle, I talked to Professor Lucy Green about her work that she does with the sun. So, Lucy, what is a solar cycle? Well, I think probably the sort of easiest way to think of the solar cycle is an 11-year rise and fall of the number of sunspots that we see on the surface of the sun and then associated activity that goes with that, like solar flares and eruptions and so on. And what causes this solar cycle? Well, to understand it, we need to go into the sun because even though the solar cycle is you know, um, described observationally by features such as sunspots, actually it's a magnetic cycle. And that was something that was discovered in the early 1900s. 
And it sort of revolutionized our view of the sun. So this 11-year progression is actually an 11-year evolution of the cycle of the magnetic sun that repeats itself. And we know that the magnetism of stars is generated by processes inside the stars themselves. And it's to do with how electrically charged um, fluid flows inside the sun. And obviously you can't go up to the sun with a, a magnetometer or a compass or anything like that. So how do we actually measure the, the magnetism of the sun? Well, we can do it in sort of the same way as we get pretty much most of our information about the sun, which is utilising the light that the sun sends our way. And there's a particular technique where if you take some of the light, so for example, light at a particular wavelength associated with a particular spectral line, you can capture that light and then you can look at its properties. And the properties that we need to study for magnetism are how the light is polarised, which is to do with the way that the wave is propagating through space. And if we can measure that polarisation state, we can then from that work out what the magnetism was at it at the light source because ultimately magnetism creates or can create this polarization of, of the light so we can literally take our cameras measure the light coming from the sun pass it through you know special instrumentation and then do a lot of math and a lot of processing of the data and end up with a map of the magnetic field at, in, in the surface of the sun. So for people who are you know, familiar with looking at the sun, looking at the photosphere, looking at sunspots, it's that layer of the sun that we're uh, measuring the magnetic field in. And ultimately then that magnetic field itself was, was born and was um, evolved in the solar interior. So it's formed on the inside of the sun, it rises up to the surface and into the atmosphere, and then it's, it's cycled appropriately. So you've been looking at the sun for, for several years now. What's it currently doing at the moment? Well, at the moment, it's in a phase that we call solar minimum. So anybody who's looking at the sun now won't see many sunspots. And with our instruments that measure magnetism, we're measuring only very weak magnetic fields. But, I mean, it won't remain that way forever. So as we've said, this 11-year solar cycle that kind of ebbs and flows, we're expecting the very minimum phase to be here perhaps later this year, perhaps into early 2020, and then activity will pick up again. So we have very few sunspots, we have weak magnetic fields, and that means that we have less frequent solar activity. So less frequent um, explosions that we call solar flares, less frequent eruptions that we call so, um, coronal mass ejections. But we still do get some activity, it's just a, a bit smaller and, and, a, and a bit less frequent. And how regular are these cycles? Is it like 11 years on the dot or is it a bit more fluid than that? Yeah, it, it is a bit more fluid. So we like to call it a cycle, but actually on average, the cycle length is 11.1 years, but they do vary. So they could be as short as, say, eight years long. They could be as long as 15 years. And so the challenge is for people who work on solar cycle prediction to try and work out, well, what will the size and the length of upcoming cycles be? And, you know, it's a really complex process. And, and again, because lots of important factors are happening inside the sun, it makes it a very challenging area to work in. Um, so it's not quite right to think about it really as being this nice cycle that rises and falls regularly because they can be shorter, the cycles can be longer, some cycles can have loads of sunspots at solar maximum, other cycles can be much smaller. And we're in an interesting point at the moment because the cycles over sort of the last three cycles or so 
have been getting smaller. So we're just coming to the end of what we call solar cycle 24 now. And that's been sort of a relatively small cycle. And so the challenge is now to try and forecast what the next cycle will be in size and also when it will begin. Uh, So are there sort of longer term cycles that the sun seems to go through? There are. And it's, it's hard to monitor these and hard to study these because our best proxy for the solar cycle comes from sunspots and the sunspot number. And we've had really good observations of sunspots, say from sort of the mid 1800s when people started to be a bit more systematic about measuring um, and recording the spots. But in fact, you know, the telescope's been used since the early 1600s. So there are sunspot records going back even longer. And then there are some observations taken with the naked eye even before that. So very large sunspots, perhaps viewed on a misty or you know cloudy day would have been noticed and be able to be resolved by the human eye. So there are sort of these different um, length scales of observations. So our best, the best known cycle is the 11-year solar cycle, but then sort of running on top of that are cycles of different lengths too. So going up to 80 years, and a cycle that has lengths of about 80 years, and then even longer cycles. So it's you know it's really you know more accurate to think about these different cycle lengths being superimposed on on top of each other, which again then adds another complexity to understand how the sun's evolving on the inside to generate these even longer cycles. So do you have any predictions about what cycle 25 might be like? Well, hot off the press, actually, just in the last few weeks, the American panel for um, predicting solar cycle 25 has just released its statement. So it's a panel that's chaired by both NOAA and NASA. So they're the two administrations in America that oversee um, research in the atmosphere and, and also in space. And they've been working together for many years now thinking about solar cycle predictions. So they just issued their forecast, which is that solar cycle 25, so the one after this one, will be similar in size to the one that we're in at the moment. And so the maximum for the next cycle should be somewhere between 2023 and 2026. So that's kind of the consensus view of a lot of people who've come together who work in this area. And of course, that's that's the kind of yeah what they've agreed on. But there will be deviations across across the work that's been carried out. But it's it's a really hard um, piece of work to do. And I remember when the the forecasts were coming out for the cycle we're currently in. So the first predictions came out in uh, I think it was 2006, and the forecast was that that we would have a fairly decent sized cycle. But then the sunspots appeared on the sun very slowly and so the cycle prediction was downgraded or the cycle size was downgraded um, in 2009 and then again in 2011 so it's a really interesting time to be in solar physics because the sun just seemed to be sort of diminishing in activity (laughs) before our eyes and it sparked a huge amount of interest I remember being at conferences and people in the coffee uh, breaks were talking oh my goodness you know the sun is not as active as we were expecting it to be and what does this mean and it led to all kinds of conversations of people thinking well is the sun sort of almost shutting down before our eyes And, and if so what an amazing time to be able to study the sun in and you know, people were thinking about a time at the end of the 1600s, start of the 1700s, when the solar cycle seemed to sort of switch off for a period of about 70 years. And we were thinking, oh, well, maybe we could be entering that 
that level of activity again. Um, I mean, I think that's that's not the consensus view now, but I think the, the point that I took away from the solar cycle that we're currently in being much smaller than we expected was that we shouldn't take anything for granted. Previously, during the space age, we've had a very active sun, lots going on, lots of sunspots. And it was, I think, a real eye-opener to us as a community to start to think, well, actually, the sun is varying, it is changing, and we shouldn't take for granted that the level of activity that we experience, well, we were, you know, all training in solar physics is, is the level of activity that we'll see in the future. Uh, you said there that um, it looked like the sun might be shutting down. And, and to you as a scientist, that's very exciting. But but to me, that sounds a little bit terrifying. Um, <laughs> so why is it that we, why, is it important that we study the sun um, for, for our own safety here on Earth? I think it is. And I, I mean, yeah, I don't want to terrify, terrify people by saying the sun's shutting down because that's sort of my phrasing on it. The sun won't switch off altogether. Um, but the sun is a star that really makes a difference on our lives. And perhaps the way to sort of conceptualize it is that, you know, we're living on planet Earth and we're um, surrounded by the Earth's atmosphere. Well, if you go up and up and up, we end up being in space. But that region of space is actually um, filled with the sun's atmosphere because the sun has this really extended atmosphere that stretches over all of the planets in the solar system and out to a distance of, well, probably I think it's you know, 20 billion kilometers, something like that from the sun. So we are all embedded in the atmosphere of the sun. And so in the same way as the Earth's atmosphere has weather, the sun's atmosphere also has weather. Um, that's created by these eruptions and explosions, solar flares and coronal mass ejections. So we are we are embedded in the atmosphere of the sun, and the level of activity varies across the solar cycle. It's all driven by the same magnetism that generates or creates the solar cycle, and so. Um, understanding what the sun is doing now, understanding what it will do in the future really matters for us. And we have this phrase now, this this area of research that we call space weather. And that's a sort of catch-all phrase that we use to describe how changes in the atmosphere of the sun due to flares and eruptions ultimately affects us here on, on planet Earth. So we are, I think, in an era where it's imperative to study the sun because during times of high solar activity or, or strong solar activity, it doesn't necessarily have to be that frequent, just has to be impactful. We can have um, effects on our satellites, on our communications, on our electricity distribution. You know, and these are all sort of fundamental parts of modern life that we rely on hugely. You know, if you imagine if, if we lost power, that would have a you know all the cascading effects that come from that would be really impactful on our lives. So there's a huge amount of research now that's going into understanding how solar activity affects us, and this prediction of the solar cycle is all part of that. It's kind of the first point in being able to say, right, well, in five years' time, what will the status of the sun be in terms of the solar cycle? And then from that, what can we extrapolate in terms of how active it will be and what the space weather will be like. Professor Lucy Green, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. That was Professor Lucy Green, and you can find out more about the solar cycle in Professor Green's feature in the May issue of BBC Sky Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky this month, which you can find out all about in our May issue. But if there's one thing you really should try, it's a technique known as star hopping. This is a great way of navigating and becoming familiar with the night sky, particularly at a young age. Head outside just as the sky darkens and try to find the star pattern or asterism known as the saucepan. 
The sides of the saucepan shape point down towards the bright star Regulus in Leo, which is easily identified because of the backward question mark shape of stars rising above it. Return to the saucepan and extend the line of the two stars in the pan furthest from the handle in the opposite direction of Regulus. You will arrive at Polaris, also known as the North Star. Or you can try extending the curve of the saucepan's handle away from the saucepan to arrive at bright orange Arcturus. Keep going along the arc and you'll arrive at White Speaker. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about the solar cycle in the May issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also reveal how you can safely observe the sun for yourself. Also in this month's magazine, we report on our recent visit to Kielder Observatory, discover the best accessories to enhance your stargazing sessions, and look back at the historic Apollo 10 mission. That's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes. <laughs>